at, at the time I thought I just have to believe and, and I'll get back to playing and I remember I put my jersey on one night and fell asleep in it and was just bawling trying to stay quiet because I didn't want to wake my my parents up and it was I don't think it was as much a dark place as in frustration and depression it was more fear of what am I going to do because at that point I started to I mean, I wasn't near 100%, but started to realize that recovery was happening. And if I got back to 100%, what would what would I do with my life when I'm not playing sports or I'm not a hockey player? Hi, I'm Ben Finelli, the host of the Heroic Minds podcast, head injury survivor. I like to consider myself a philanthropist, but I, I'm not sure if you can you can give me that name just yet. But hopefully, in the future. And this is the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Head and Sales Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring you Ben Finelli, who's a Canadian hockey player who finished his career with the Kitchener Rangers. Uh, and when Ben was 16 years old, he woke up in the hospital and was told he was lucky to be alive. He'd never play sports again, and he may actually be a different person than he was before his injury suffered in a hockey game, uh, which caused a skull fracture and three bleeds in, in three different places in his brain. Uh, ben is now the founder and host of the Heroic Minds podcast, whose mission is to create a community of people that find comfort in uncommon ground, courage in difficulty, and selflessness in struggle. People that ensure they are the hero of their own story. Uh, and with a story and a mission like his, uh, how could I not want to have him on on this podcast? So, Ben, I'm really excited that you're going to share your story. And if you could, if you start off by kind of taking us what led up you know, to that checking to the boards that kind of left you motionless on the ice and fighting for your life. For sure. First off, I, I love what you're doing too. So that, those were some kind words, but I also love what you've got going on here as well. For for me, I it really started, I'm telling the story. When I tell the story, it's from my point of view, it's actually, um, you, you miss the whole injury because I don't remember pretty much the whole week in the hospital, the day before the game and the game itself. So most of it I'm telling from bits and pieces of what I remember, but from my point of view, and then, and then I'll sum things up of what really happened. So I just woke up in the hospital. So what actually happened was I remember playing the night before about 50 minutes from our home rink in Brampton, Ontario. And I remember I had a great game. I was a young guy in the league, an underager. I was on, I, my parents came to see me because they weren't too far from from where we were playing. And I left the rink. And at this point, it was my sixth game of, I think, 12 games we played or 10 games. So I wasn't in every game. I was a young guy. But at the time, a lot of people were telling me, you know what, you're going to have a chance to play in professional hockey one day. So here I am, six games in. I leave the rink. I had a great game. My parents are there. I give them both hugs. I pack the bus because that was one of the rookie duties. I grab the meals and hand those out to all the guys on the team. That was another rookie duty to, you know, earn your reps. And, and then I woke up in the hospital and that's the last thing I remember was being on the bus in Brampton. But what actually happened was 
there was a full 24 hours before I got hurt that I actually don't remember. So when I was on that bus, we drove all the way home as normal. And in this game, to be clear, I wasn't hit in this game, just so I'm clear with the story. I get back to Kitchener, I guess, that I don't remember, routine, go to school the next day, get up, um, and then go to the game. And I play the first period, and second period is when I had my injury. And what happened was I was hit behind my net, and that's actually one of the first things the doctor told me. So. Um, I was hit behind my net and my helmet fell off and my head hit the metal stanchion that holds the glass in place. And I fell to the ice and un unfortunately it's, it's all over YouTube and was all over Sportsnet at the time. And I was taken to the local hospital, but they didn't have what I needed for what I was going through. So they actually put me in a helicopter and I was airlifted about an, an hour south to a town called Hamilton, Ontario. And when I woke up in the hospital, my mom was sitting to my left and the, the doctor was standing to my right. And the, my mom said to me, Ben, do you know why you're here? As she saw me start to come to. And instantly I started to tear up because I had absolutely no idea how I got in there. No idea, not a clue. And I was shaking my limbs. You know, I'd broken bones before, needed a bunch of stitches. And I figured, you know, what hurts? What did I do? How can I piece this together? all in this moment because I was just scattering for answers. And then before she could chime in and tell me what exactly had happened, the doctor uh, stepped in and said, you know, what I just told you, you were hit behind your net, so on and so forth. You were airlifted here. And, and then he went right in, before he even told me what was actually the injury was, he said that sports were going to be out of the question for the rest of my life. I guess that's a tactic or an approach doctors can take if, you know, to not beat around the bush, I assume. And that's what he said instantly was that sports were out of the question, wouldn't go to school for another two years. And if I did go to school, I would need a teaching assistant. And then the last two things he had to say were actually the scariest in that moment. And that was that I was, I was lucky to be alive. Nothing was certain over the next seven days that I was going to be in the hospital and that I may be a different person than I was the first 16 years of my life. So to go from taking a huge leap towards what I thought would be playing in the NHL one day, especially at that age when you may have a bit of an ego and people are telling you things and you start to gain a little bit of confidence, uh, to be in that moment being told that you won't ever play sports again when sports were the biggest part of my life, it was it was tough to hear, that's for sure. So. From that point, he then explained that what was actually going on in my brain at that moment was I had three bleeds and two were on the surface, hematomas, and then one, or sorry, epidural hematoma, and then two or one inside, a subdural hematoma. So what they were going to do over the next seven days was monitor how those bleeds were doing and, and we're basically debating the whole week if they should go in and do brain surgery, if they shouldn't. So a lot of ups and downs during the week that is very blurry to me. I don't remember much. And then the following Friday, so I was there Friday to Friday. And, and actually a legend that uh, your listeners might know is actually Adam Graves who came to the hospital because he was good buddies with my coach, Steve Spott. So, he came to the hospital 
Uh, the commissioner of the league came to the hospital. A bunch of people came to the hospital. I had a, a box full of letters from around Canada and in the United States of, of get well cards. But, you know, that that's a bit of a tangent, but I, I just showing the support that I had, it, it was, it was incredible. Um, so I'm there for the week on the last Friday, the doctor came in and said, Ben, you know what? This is the last CAT scan and MRI we're going to do. We're going to see how things look. If you've healed up, you can head home from here and continue your recovery at home. He said, if things haven't cleared up, we're going to have to do brain surgery. So at this point, and this is a, this I remember probably the only thing I remember in the hospital really clearly was he, he left the room and the nurses came in, a team of nurses, and they started gluing beads on my head to prep for a potential brain surgery. My mom came over to the hospital bed to sit with me and we were praying, trying to stay positive, tears in our eyes, of course. And then at this point, my dad, a firefighter of, I think at that point, 25 years, almost 30 years, um, he said, and he didn't like seeing my brother and I hurt my entire childhood. Whenever, you know, I broke my wrist, he dropped me at the hospital and be like, mom or Sue, you gotta, you gotta come over here because Ben's hurt and, and he didn't like seeing my brother and I in pain yet a firefighter that's, you know, seen much worse. So anyways, he, he comes into the hospital room and says, Ben, you know what? I'm going to go grab the van and pull it up front so that when we get the good news, you'll be able to head home. Carl will be nice and warm. You can hop in and, and we can head home. And he's a, a huge source of, of my inspiration and courage and motivation for sure. He's, a, he's an optimist. Um, and I laugh about it now, but I, I definitely wasn't at the time. So anyways, now I think what goes by is I felt like three or four hours, but it definitely was a little shorter than that. And finally the results come back and the doctor comes in and says, Ben, we're not able to explain how you've healed the way you have, but you're going to be able to head home here today. And that was a, a feeling I, you, I, you just can't put it into words. It was for me, sport wasn't even, didn't even exist for someone that sport was everything to. And, and that did become a bit of an issue in the future when I did have to contemplate never playing again. But at that moment, sport didn't even exist. It was, it was survival and, and life and just so much bigger than anything else that could ever go on. So they picked me up, put me in the wheelchair, wheeled me downstairs. And lo and behold, just like my dad said, I don't think he could have been parked any closer to the sliding doors of the hospital. I basically just walked out of the hospital and went right into the van. There was, there was no space between and, and I headed home and then the two years of recovery began. Yeah, that's, that's incredible, man. And our stories are so similar, you know, and I had a subdural and a subarachnoid hematoma and like a midline shift in my brain. And I had to be airlifted to the hospital also. Um, And same thing. I, I actually did have to have brain surgery because the bleed in my, the bleeds in my head weren't getting better. They're actually getting worse. Oh, wow. So like a couple of days later, I had to get that fixed. Um, but when I was going into the surgery, the doctor literally told me that I would never play football again. And that really was like kind of the start, although it was a long time before I actually started of like my podcast and trying to have athletes on like you to share stories to kind of not commiserate, but just to show that you're not, you know, you're not alone out there. And because I felt really lonely at the time. And I'm glad that you know, you 
had you were able to avoid the surgery and it's cool how your dad was uh optimistic mm-hmm. and his optimism uh paid off it's a that was a, a great story uh, but like you said you know this, that was the start of a, a two-year recovery so um you said at that point it was survival and i remember being in the hospital too and my head hurt me so bad after surgery that like I was like, I'm never playing football again just because I'm like in so much pain that I just like don't want to go through that again. But obviously, once the pain goes away, you're like, all right, I want to play again. That's exactly uh, so, it. Yeah, man. So, yeah, you, you, how quickly you forget. Uh, but, yeah, so let, let's start talking about that two-year recovery. So, like, what were some of the lingering symptoms and uh, stuff that you were experiencing like right off the bat? So, at first – Well, they had me on anti-seizure medication and I think that played a big role in how I felt because ironically, when I started to wean off that as I started to get better, um, they took me off that and things started to really ramp up with recovery-wise just in relation to symptoms. So, when I first got into the hospital, light was really, I was super sensitive to light. I was always wearing sunglasses. Memory was a little off. Um, Balance was a little off the the kind of the standard symptoms that you generally hear about my my mood wasn't too bad and i know we hear that a lot in concussion but my mood wasn't too bad it was it was it was pretty good mind you i did have a lot of ton of positive people around me at the time because i moved back home and all my buddies kept coming over and people were bringing meals over and my teammates would drive down from kitchener which was about an hour and a half and they came to say hi and so i had i had positive people my grandfather lived right across the street and he was a a doctor which was nice to have his support so i was i was surrounded by positive people so i my mood wasn't really an issue but you had the other stuff that that i said and all i was allowed to do was walk around the block at first and that's literally what i did i was walking around the block and and like you said, how quickly you forget. And it, because I felt good and there was still that that fight and that athlete in me, I mean, that didn't didn't vanish. Maybe the time in the hospital I forgot about it, but it was still in me. And, you know, I was I was pushing the envelope enough that I wasn't putting myself in an unsafe situation and would keep up to date with the doctor and but that those walks turned into a little faster walks and then a few walks a day. And it sounds ridiculous, but at the time you're told not to do really to do much. So yeah, it was kind of some speed walks around the block, which turned into some light jogs. And then I started mixing in balance drills and Sudokus and uh, started changing my diet because at the time, and it sounds similar with your storyline or the, the era that you went through yours and I went through mine, it wasn't concussion and what to do and what to eat and, and physio you can get and, and all that didn't really exist because... I feel like my, unfortunately, after mine, you saw Crosby and Booth and, and it kind of, then this whole concussion thing came out of the, from under the rug. And now it's a serious thing that is talked about a lot. And now there's some more resources than I had. So my, because of that, at the time, all I did was look up any and everything I could do, sleeping habits, uh, nutrition, balance, uh, cognitive games, uh, physio, I was getting certain massages that were supposed to help increase blood flow to the brain psychocranial manipulation i believe it's called and just trying to do any and everything so if five of the things didn't work at least there were one or two other things that i was doing that could help and thought that was kind of the best thing to do so that's what i i did and then two months later so 
uh, October, November, December, I was home. And then partway through, just after Christmas, I pushed it for those two months and things started to get to the point where I, I think at that point I was, it was out of anticipatory uh, pain that if I did something, I would, I would hurt myself or whatnot. And, and, but I was actually feeling better and better. And my mom said to me, Ben, you know what? You're starting to drive me crazy again. Like you used to, cause I started to get my energy back. Um, is maybe it's time you move back with the team. And for someone, my mom that hates hockey and hated the violence of it. And this is the worst thing that could have happened. It's funny. She suggested I move back into my billet house with my with my team and my billet family is the same as my family they're incredible so that wasn't it but it was just to put me back in that culture but it's it's funny because it is such an amazing group to be around the the hockey world and and specifically the team i had the list of guys that i was lucky enough and honored to play with are just the most stand-up individuals and a lot of them are in the nhl today and, and those guys are just amazing so i i moved back into this culture that was supportive and every day was pushing me too. They treated me when I, well, when I got back to the rink, my head coach, Steve Spott, who's now the assistant coach with the San Jose Sharks said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to treat you like everyone else. And there's going to be a stall in the room though. Cause you're a part of this team. I signed a, a contract for four years with potentially the overage year. He's like, you're going to be, as long as your contract is, you're going to be a part of this team. He's like, we are going to be treated that way as well. Which was really between that and my mom deciding to bring me back and put me back in the amazing community that I was a part of. And we've seen what the hockey community is all about now with this Humboldt um, incident that happened that just showed how the hockey community really works. And and I had that in this community here in Kitchener-Waterloo and it was the best decision I could have made. So I moved back with my billet family. I started, and then I think about a month or two into being with my billet family, started to wean off the medication. I'm still doing any and everything I can. I'm watching practice, and then I'm I'm doing my own physio stuff and all the things I'm doing while the boys are on the ice because I wasn't allowed. And then I would do community events and travel with the team to games and do anything I could in the room to kind of earn the respect from the guys. And it was an interesting, it was interesting because here I am a 16 year old that's trying to earn respect from the older guys before and after my injury. And it started, it really started to work. I was filling bottles. I was joking around with the guys and, and honestly, in any team I've been a part of, I've, I've always been, you know, tried to be a leader, but I've always been a bit of a clown to keep things lighthearted at all times. So the older guys, I think appreciated that they liked that I was a bit of a goof. And but looking back, there was no, reason really that these guys had to show that support or respect me like i'm talking big some pretty big names that didn't have to give me the time of day and guys that were well on their way to the long-term deals and the incredible nhl careers they have now john moore jeff skinner gabriel landeskog you know the the list kind of goes on over the next even the next year so um i really lucked out with with the group i had and, and steve spot really had that culture embedded in the room and i think it was really the game changer in my recovery i was i was you know my with my billet family too i was making my own lunches i was getting back into routine was it a little before i should have 
Well, who really knows, right? I, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have because there's a lot of research coming out now and some that the foundation I work with, we, we are trying to get into it as well and, and support it and, and then break that research down and share it. And it's all about that, you, well, you would know being in the dark room and we hear that and how, you know, lay low for a long time till the symptoms subside. And, you know, if someone doesn't sustain a concussion and they sit in a dark room for a week, how do you think they're going to feel? Concussion or not, right? It's, so it's, it's interesting that maybe by accident of putting my pushing myself that extra one percent not too much to cause damage or issues but enough to just constantly challenge myself somewhat could be the reason i was continued to heal i don't know i i really don't i don't know what the the single thing was maybe it was a bit of everything but it's it's interesting that moving back with the team getting back into routine a little earlier than predicted. I got back into high school as well. The teachers helped me out with, with um, a little extra time on tests because I was still on the medication at that point. And then, and then but then after that, once I was off the medication, two months after I moved in and then I kind of just got back to school like I always had and, and then finished high school on time. And then... And then it came basically that two, two years, I, I actually, it's, so after that first year, that's basically the story that I was just telling. And then come year two. So at this point, at the end of year one, I was back to the gym lifting. I was, I left the hospital at 175, 165 pounds, I think. Went in at 180, I think. Left at, or maybe it was lighter. I don't know. I, I lost a ton of weight. I got back to playing at 215 or back. Sorry, that next year I was about 215. And we met with the coaches and, and it's like, there's no way you can't play. Like no one's approved you. And here I am the strongest I've ever been built, feeling a hundred percent. And we met as a family and said, there's, there's just no way. So what we did at that point though, was there was a, I had an appointment with a neurologist planned for two years after my injury. And that was actually planned after, after the hospital. And that was just to do a, a general checkup. So over that next year, I still lived with the team. I wasn't playing, wasn't allowed on the ice. And then I realized, I'm, you know what, I'm feeling pretty good. I can push myself. So I actually started or decided to start a foundation just with the team locally called uh, headstrong. It, I've, it's, I've kind of grown it and changed the name a little bit now, but it was originally called headstrong. I would go to schools and speak about my story and concussion, which was a lot of fun. I love public speaking. And then I decided I would do a triathlon. I, I don't know why or what got me into it. I think, actually, I think it was because I was reading Lance Armstrong's book and he was just such an inspiration to myself. And actually Gabriel Landeskog as well, that is lucky enough to be friends with him and he loved Lance as well. So we loved reading his book and everything he stood for. And, and I still think he's one of the most incredible people. And anyways, I think it was him, you know, being on the bike that inspired me that, yeah, I'll try a triathlon. But at the end of the day, what I realized was I was proving to myself that I was okay. And I was also able to prove to my parents that I was okay. So I thought, I'm allowed to play hockey. At that point, doctors said, you know what, you can push yourself as long as you don't feel anything at all or any issues, then it's, you're good to go. So I thought, okay, 
during practices, I would run around the rink to get my run in. And then once the guys got off the ice, I would go downstairs and ride the bike with them and do a hard ride. And then I'd go to the pool after that. And this is with school as well. So that second year, I was actually pretty busy because I was finishing up high school and I was training for this triathlon and speaking at schools and trying to stay involved with the team. And yeah, then year three comes. So when that, at the end of that summer, at the end of year two, in July, I believe, comes that that meeting, that uh, meeting with the neurologist in Toronto. And we show up to the meeting. The doctor turns both monitors around. The doctor had two monitors in front of them. And um, one screen had my skin my MRI from that night that I was, that I was heard. And the other screen had my MRI from the most recent, which would have been a couple weeks prior. And the doctor said, we really can't explain it. Like I can't explain how things have cleared up, but if I wanted to play hockey again, I'd be able to do so. And it was one of the craziest moments of my life because for two reasons, one, because I was in total shock and awe and just the thoughts going through my head that, oh my God, like everything I've dreamed of and wished for is like in front of my eyes and potentially coming true. But the other reason it was incredible was because it was one of the toughest moments because my mom, uh, my mom broke down because she was so scared for me to play the game again. So it was kind of an, a room with so many different emotions. It was really, it, I think about it now and it 100% breaks my heart to know that she was that scared for me and it wasn't the thing that I wanted nothing more than. It, it was, so it was an interesting situation. So. We le- we left the hospital room and had a lot of a lot of talking to do. And at that point, we chatted all the way home, what we were gonna do. I was in a way trying to hide my excitement because I knew how worried. I mean, my dad was too, but my mom more so. And then I think two weeks later, we met with everyone involved in the situation: my coach, my agent. All, actually, all the coaches, the the CEO of the team, um, and the commissioner of the league, myself, my yeah. So we met and said, you know, this is how it's going to work if you're going to play again. And kind of went through, you know, if you feel anything, my trainers were there as well. Sorry, if you feel anything off at all, you know, you have to speak up. And it was actually a pretty long conversation and just to make sure everyone's on the same page and then at that point I we decided that I would play again and that that first game back I guess three or four months after that conversation was it's it's hard to explain like just actually I just got back from Winnipeg watching one of the playoff games there against Nashville and their rink's not too much bigger than London's rink here in in town, the London Knights, or sorry, not in town, about an hour and a half from here. And it 
looking around and seeing the entire stadium on their feet just reminded me of that moment back in in Kitchener. I mean, we didn't have 15,000 per se, but close to eight. And it what it represented was the reason I was there, having all those fans up on their feet cheering for me as I was introduced my first game back was it was really a snapshot of the reason I was able to skate out. I had the team at my back. I had my coaches at my back supporting me. If you play again, great. If not, you're still a part of this team. That was the approach. It was no pressure at all. That was my coaching staff. I would go to Tim Hortons and people would recognize me, someone that played six games. So really no one should know who I am yet. I would walk into Tim Hortons here and they would, you know what, this coffee's on me. Don't worry about it. Uh, community events that I was a part of, countless people would come up and say, I, I really hope you play again. I mean, I hope you're safe and healthy, but if you can play again, I'd love to watch you play. That's the kind of stuff that I would get in this community and skating out on that ice. People have asked me what it felt like and it was a flat line. When if you took a... Uh, a scan of my brain to see the brain waves at that moment, it was a flat line. It, it was almost a, a pause. I didn't, there was nothing going in or out of my mind at that point. It was just a pause in, in life. It was, it was pretty incredible, but, but really what it meant was it was nothing fancy I did. It was nothing incredible. It was the fact that I did it because of the people that I had around me. And then that's what led me into want to do what, what I do today, which is just try to, help as many people as I can, just as you're doing. And to hear the feedback from people that email me, it's, I always think about it. Well, you know what? It's the very, very least I can do because I'm here today because of people that were so selfless. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, thanks for sharing your story. And I got, you know, multiple things from, you know, what you were talking about. And the first thing uh, was I related to the anti-seizure medicine because I actually had a seizure on the field after my head injury wow. and I was on anti-seizure medicine for a while and I had some episodes like later on with seizures and stuff and that anti-seizure medicine like makes you like a different person. It's like, it's terrible. Luckily, it I don't have to. It slows you down almost. Yeah. You're like in slow motion for everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I really, I resonate with you on that one. Luckily, I don't have to take that anymore. Yeah. But the great. other thing that you had mentioned was you know, I think with concussions, especially in brain injuries, like there's no set protocol like there is for a knee injury or for a shoulder injury in terms of your rehab. You kind of like almost write your own rehab program, like within limits. Uh, like you don't want to push it too hard, obviously, um, too soon. But I think the fact that you immersed yourself back into that culture, um, I think was obviously very beneficial toward, you know, to your recovery and was a credit to, I mean, obviously you're extremely blessed, you know, uh, with your health that you were healthy enough to be cleared again to play hockey. But I think that kind of being in that environment kind of kept you, um, in the right spirits and in the right mindset and busy and distracted from maybe slipping into those dark places that I ended up slipping into. Cause for me, when I, was with the football team, you know, a month after my injury, I was back with my team, you know, I, I wasn't great. Like I obviously still wish I could have played, but I was still there. I was still a part of things. I still kind of had that identity. But as soon as that season was over and, um, 
you know, baseball season was over. I was no longer an athlete anymore. That was when it got dark and it got dark quick. And when I didn't have that support system, like you talked about, um, and like, like we're both trying to create, that's the really difficult part. Um, I think for athletes. So did you have like a low point throughout your recovery that you remember, or was it really like a kind of like a linear progression back on the ice? That's interesting. I, I, I did. I mean, I had my time where at night before I moved back with the team right before, and I know I was only home for two and a half months, whatever it was. And there were times where I was, I felt so lost, like you said, and this was before I moved back with the team though. This was before I found this, this really, like I had good support, but before I found really, really great support, which was being back with the team and in this community and it it was a feeling of what, because you, like you, I'm sure you could resonate. You grow up thinking and at that age, starting to believe, like it's always a thought, but once you can start to believe and see a path of, wow, I see how I could get there now. I see how it's not as far away as it used to be. You start to think and channel all your thoughts and beliefs towards, well, when I'm this age, I'll do this because I'll be playing hockey and I'll have this because I'll be playing hockey. So that's, I got into that mindset pretty quick from, you know, getting drafted and being able to play and starting to get free equipment and all that and playing in front of a bunch of people. And it, it, even though I didn't do it for that long, you convince yourself pretty quickly that that was going to be the future for you. So when I was laying in bed and just heard a month earlier that I was, you know, once I, like we talked about, you get that, that, uh, that fight back in you, the athlete talking voice in your head and that, what are you going to do now? Because you're an athlete. What, so there were nights embarrassing as it is that I would, I got a bunch of jerseys sent to my place and one of them was the third jerseys that they wore on Remembrance Day. Every year, the, my team had someone locally design a jersey and they were just incredible. And they sent me mine. Usually they raffle them off, but they sent me mine. And I remember one night I was so, at, at the time I thought, I just have to believe and, and I'll get back to playing. And I remember I put my jersey on one night and fell asleep in it and was just bawling, trying to stay quiet because I didn't want to wake my my parents up. And it was, that was, and I, I don't think it was as much a dark place as in frustration and depression. It was more fear of what am I going to do? Because at that point I started to, I mean, I wasn't near a hundred percent, but started to realize that recovery was happening. And if I got back to hundred percent, what would, what would I do with my life when I'm not playing sports or I'm not a hockey player? So that was, that was probably one of the darkest times. The other tough times were when I was sitting up top during games, watching the team play. Like you said, you're back with the team. And they're, at that point, I'm really good friends with them. I mean, I watched the games for two years and wasn't able to play. I'm, they're my best friends and they get to play in front of you know, 7,500 people and I'm not able to be there on the bench with them. There were times where I, I couldn't watch and I would actually just go to the pool and swim. I would sometimes I wouldn't even show up to the rink and I felt bad because I wasn't there to support the team. But it was, I think at that point, I didn't want 
I didn't want to get to a point where I wasn't okay mentally and thought, okay, I'm just going to find some healthy distractions. And that's when, which leads into actually what the other thing you said was when you, well, I'm talking about it too, but you said, you know, I'm an athlete, what else am I going to do type thing? It's everything I know. When I left the rink and started to swim and was focusing on the triathlon, I actually found other distractions too that I'm actually now pursuing today. I started, so I started that little program, the Headstrong program, and then started to teach myself about nonprofit work and the business models and that, and tried to pursue public speaking and improve my ability to do that. Then I started reading about the, you know, the nonprofit business, started reading about other business and I wasn't taking psychology at school, but was just super interested in it because of what happened to me. There was no explanation of what happened to my brain. So I thought, that's incredible. I'd love to learn more about it. So then I got into psychology and now I look to my left and I see all the books about the brain, neurology and psychology that I've been reading today because it just fascinates me. And so there's being forced out of the game actually introduced me to things that I'm now pursuing once I stepped away from the game on my own merit. So it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that way as we, as I'm sure you've been part of conversations of the, the identity of the athlete is an issue these days and, and we have to be better, you know, with, with yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm like really impressed with your whole approach to really everything uh, <laughs> in, after your injury, especially in terms of your rehab, like you were very proactive yourself and trying to learn new techniques and like you were doing the Sudokus like in your rehab and stuff. Like I didn't do any of that stuff <laughs> and I didn't even think to like look up, you know, uh, things that I could be doing to stimulate my brain. I actually did an interview. One of my first interviews ever on the podcast was with, I forget the name. I think it was like Ty Summerlin, I think. Um, that's like the name that rings a bell at least, but it's a gym in Canada actually uh, called Ignite Gym. Okay. And they work with athletes that have concussions and like they basically do like kind of CrossFit style workouts um, but they throw in like a Sudoku or some sort of puzzle like in the middle of the workout. So you have to like do that <laughs> while you're fatigued. But wow. I, I did this interview like three years ago and it, what was cool is like you did that to yourself. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah. you, like you did the research and like you put, you put yourself through that. Well, so. I would say, yeah, somewhat research is it's super cool that you said that because I, I was, I sat down with Amanda Kessel and talked about her, her concussion and then how, I mean, then she went to the Olympics, won a silver medal and then overcame it and well had, sorry, well overcame it after two years of almost two years of struggle. And what fixed it for her was she saw a doctor in Pittsburgh and I can't remember the name exactly, saw a doctor in Pittsburgh that ran her through something. Well, not, it wasn't CrossFit and it wasn't exactly what you said, but very similar. So he actually had her on the bike and then doing lunges and twisting and balance while tired and, you know, pushing her way harder than she'd ever been pushed. She said somewhat close to ever pushed that hard. And who, who would think that that's what you do with a concussion? We're all told the exact opposite. So that's what did it for her. She said it didn't take much longer. And after, you know, training for a couple of weeks with, with that doctor and things started to really improve quite rapidly. So it's, it's interesting the more stories you hear about stuff like that. It's, I think the one thing is now there just needs to be more research to support it. And that's where right. I think things are going though. Yeah. And, and you also reminded me when you were 
taught when you were telling your story about how like you, you always trying to push it, you know, that extra 1% or so. And when I think back to my recovery, see like the whole reason why I hurt myself in the first place and why I continue to hurt myself to this day is because I, I, I kind of have outgrown it thankfully, but it, it was <laughs> outgrown the hard way because I was just such a freaking meathead that I just wanted to like push through any kind of injury and just like, you know, and I actually pushed so hard after my surgery, like in the, the month, you know, or two after to try to get my muscle back. Cause I lost 30 pounds in the hospital like you did. Wow. And I was just like, well, where the hell are my muscles? Like I want to get these back. <laughs> and I pushed myself so hard that I actually like got an infection from the surgery because I was just like running my body down so mm. bad. Um, because I just don't, I didn't know like when enough was enough. So mm -hmm. I think and that's another reason why like I admire your approach is like, yeah, you can like push it. Like, and especially as an athlete, like you gotta get yourself into like an uncomfortable place to improve. Like we know that, but there's a fine line that, you know, you, you need to listen to your body. And then when you're run down, you're run down, you gotta take a step back. But, totally. um, actually it was yeah, funny. You I, said you lost, you lost the weight too, just to give you reference of how, I was earning respect to the guys. And when I got back, I walked into the room. I, I think it was when I, the first day and I put on, we all have our gear in the change room that we get our shorts and t-shirt and whatnot. And my captain said to me, Hey, it's nice to see you. Did you leave your upper body in your other shirt? <laughs> so yes, welcomed with open arms as you could, you could tell, but you know, it was all in good fun and I'd rather be treated like I always was than, than baby. So it was, uh, it was good to have the guys around me that I did. Yeah. Busting your chops. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes that's, that's uh, welcome. Yeah. Cause that's like a, a sign of acceptance. Exactly. Totally. Um, another question before we kind of move on to some other topics. Uh, I, I, I'm just curious, like how the structure is. So when you, when you were on this team, this was a professional hockey team, like when you were 16 years old and you were still going to school on the side, like we were getting paid to play hockey or like, how does, I guess, how does that work? So it's, it's called, overall, it's called the Canadian Hockey League. You have one league in the Quebec area. So the Quebec Major Junior League. Then you have the OHL, the Ontario Hockey League and the WHL, and which is the Western Hockey League. So they're all under the CHL, which is Major Junior Hockey. And how it works is you underage, I think each team can have three or four and that's 16-year-olds, so people that just got drafted or players that just got drafted. And then you can have two overagers as well, which is guys that are just turning 21. So you can potentially play in the league for five years. It's the league where, you know, Sidney Crosby came from, Connor McDavid, guys like that. It's, it's basically the other option to uh, playing university hockey. For that, the two main avenues to the National Hockey League are Major Junior, which is the league I played in, and then the, the, the OHL, and then the university route, which is playing in the States. Those are the two main gotcha. avenues. So, so yeah. So, so yeah, when I got, when I got back too, I mean, it, it's a pretty competitive league. And my coach said to me, you know, you're going to be, like he always said, treated like everyone else. And if you're going to play... He also said, make sure you're in this 110% because if you're going to play, you know, there's no, I had to make the team again and had to go through the process of tryouts and, and everything to, to get back into the team. And um, yeah, from there, it was three more seasons with the Kitchener Rangers. I was lucky enough to go to camp uh, with the New York Rangers, actually, which was a, a great experience. 
I was lucky to be the the captain my last year, which was an honor when I look back at the names that have that have done that. And then decided to count my blessings. And I started to see guys that had made it and guys that didn't make it that I'd been friends with over those last five years that I'd been with the team and realized there were a lot of guys I played with that were a hundred point players that didn't that didn't make it. And I thought I it'd be great to to put all my eggs in that basket, but I think I was at the point where I count my blessings. I had so many life lessons and unbelievable experiences during my time with the Kitchener Rangers in, in the major junior, I felt, you know, it's enough for me. It's time to pursue the things that I, that I found while I was forced out of the game for a couple of years. And, and here I am today. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. And that's a good message to the athletes listening to this. Now it's like, what there's, there's a common theme that comes up in my podcast. I don't know about yours, but it's almost like there's always something you could do, like whether you're hurt or whatever, and you maximize that opportunity um, in every situation that you were put in. You know, and it, it could just, yeah, just like learn a new craft, you know, like it doesn't mean you have to give up on your dream completely, but like you could still better yourself in other avenues and make yourself a more well-rounded indiv- like person and athlete, uh, you know, look at it as, a, as an opportunity. And that's definitely what, what you did. Totally. I mean, a lot of the best players, I mean, as you'd know, have something, other hobby that they're really into, I find, you know, whether it be guitar or um, what, you know, the list goes on, whether it's an interest or reading and, and so on. So, yeah, you're, I think right. you're very right about that. Did you have any like physical imbalances uh, after your brain injury? Because I know for me, like I had a lot of like left-sided weakness um, for a while. Uh, I just didn't know if that you know, did you have any like physical setbacks? Uh, we talked about, you know, the emotional setback a little bit, but I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I cried in my bed, you know, mm. cry myself to sleep, <laughs> you know, during that time. So I definitely, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Right. Um, but what about, what about physical? Like, um, uh, did you struggle with that at all? Or? I try to look, think nothing big enough that I think about it right off the top of my head. Uh, I think because I, was pushing myself so hard physically. I was so aware of my body that um, I made sure if anything came up, I took care of it right away. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think I had anything, any any issues. No, not that I can remember. And I I was getting cool. the the massages on my neck, and that felt really really good. Like I, that might have maybe limited some ish, potential issues that would have been in my neck. But yeah, I, they've I didn't have any major issues there. All right, cool. I think that's another lesson to the listeners is when you feel things come up, make sure you address them. That's another thing that I didn't do and uh, came back to bite me many times. Uh, so when you, when you, you know, when you got back to hockey, um, you know, did you, and you said that you were named captain in, in that third year, you said? Yeah, my last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so how did your experience with adversity influence how you captained that team? It it helped big time. I mean, we we were the youngest team in the league that year, which was was rough. I, I was lucky to be a part of some pretty impressive lineups and we were just young. We had great players, but we were very young and and on the score sheet at the end of the year didn't do as well as we would have liked, but during the year it was it was cool because i don't know if my injury made me more cognizant or empathetic would be the words to 
realize you have a room of so many different minds and so many different goals. Some guys are there to because making the NHL is any and everything they want to do in life. And you have other guys that are there because their contract gets them some schooling and they can pursue schooling and they're there to have, they want to take it seriously, but they want to have a good time too. So, I mean, generally everyone bought in. I was, of, of course, but you have just different ways of dealing with things. Everyone has a different way of dealing with it. And, and when you're given the opportunity to be a leader in the room, you just have to say things in certain ways and communicate with certain people in different ways to make sure that they're all bought in and pulling on the same rope. And I re- I know that's really a generic answer, but I think going through my injuries somehow made me because I was so aware of my own feelings and, and my body and what I was going through, I think that helped me understand that, hey, not everyone, you're going to feel different and times change. And in certain situations, you'll feel like this. In other situations, you may be more emotional instead of rational. And and just understanding that, I think, helped me motivate others or make sure others were composed and, and ready to perform on the ice. Yeah, and I think that reminds me of a former guest that I had on, uh, David Vabora. He played uh, for the Rams, and he said, never trust an unbroken person. <laughs> and I think that kind of goes into what you just said. It's like that injury that kind of broke you down and you were able to build yourself back up kind of gave you a heightened sense of yeah empathy that you can kind of relate more and people can relate more to you you know, as a captain. And I think, yeah, like you said, like it, it, it helped you out. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I'm curious cause I saw, I mean, obviously I saw the YouTube video of the hit. Um, and I have a whole podcast in the fall dedicated to NFL injuries and hits and, you know, cheap shots and stuff, you know, cause I'm trying to be a voice in changing the culture of, you know, American football uh, for to make it a safer place for the athletes, mm. and after after watching your video, I thought that it was kind of BS the hit. Like it was a, definitely a cheap shot in my book. Um, so like, what did your teammates and like family say about the hit? And like, was this a rivalry game? Like, what what provoked that? Uh, if I remembered, I would I would tell you. I I honestly am not sure. I don't remember enough of it. My. I think my teammates, of course, were on my side with things. But at the end of the day, regardless of of what happened, my honest view of it is that, and I don't think this will ever change in my mind, is that it was still a function of the game. And it's gotten better, I think, the game overall. But as athletes, we're chasing something great. We're chasing something bigger than ourselves. And there's risks that come with that. It's no different than NASCAR no different than football their professional athletes chasing great things are compensated quite well but there's risks to get there and there's risks to do so and unfortunately it's a part of the game that can happen and it just happened to be to be me that night and unfortunately other athletes go through serious injuries as well you hope it it wasn't a part of the game but it is, and that's that's the way I've I've looked at it. It's never been a conversation amongst my peers or my family of he's in the wrong, I'm in the wrong, this and that. It, that was then it wouldn't have helped. You know what happened happened, and now it it definitely won't help. So the way I I talk about it is that it, it was a function of the game, and now 
in my eyes, it's what can we do to make sure we decrease the the occurrences of, of situations like that. And it, unfortunately, like driving, you can have the best drivers on the road, but accidents and certain situations can unfold. And and in, in sport, more so than driving is emotion. Well, I guess it happens in driving too, but emotions can get super high in sport and and unfortunate things happen. But on, it's a part of the game that isn't yeah is yeah it's just yeah so that's unfortunate yeah. unfortunate totally uh i had riley cote on the podcast uh probably like a year ago and he was an enforcer for the flyers mm-hmm. and we talked a lot about like the t- culture of toughness in in ice hockey and stuff like that and he kind of thinks that as the enforcer is kind of being like regulated out of the game that it's actually becoming a more dangerous sport uh, because it's getting faster and the hits are getting harder and there's no accountability for, you know, the cheap shots and stuff. Do you agree with that? That's it. It's interesting because I, with another guy that he was more of a skill player, actually, I talked about, but he had to stop playing because of a, a heart attack. And we, I brought that up with him. I didn't end up publishing it on the podcast. It was just, we ended up talking for too long about it, but it's very interesting. It's, it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm on the fence, I'll be honest. And I, and I know that's not, that's not exciting, but I'm <laughs> on the fence because I agree with him that there are instances of that still. But I think if it becomes, if they remove the players from the game that are willing to hit that way, that will overpower the need for, um, need for people to be fighting and and kind of policing, which is one of the words I've heard used. So I think great. I think he's right in a sense, and I could be completely wrong with what I'm saying. But in, in my opinion, if you wean out the players that their total focus isn't to be a skilled player and score goals and get assists, you wean you know you only have those players on the ice. I truly think the the days of of running guys and getting guys when they're in a vulnerable spot are are hopefully close to an end and and I'm being I'm being optimistic with that as we still see them today I know they exist but a lot of times there's a lot if you slow down games there are a lot of clips where I mean even look so I when I watch now I laugh because just when I finished playing we guys were told come straight down the dot lines the forwards that were forechecking me because I was a D-man come straight down the dot lines. And if you don't get a piece of them, you're probably not going to see a couple shifts. You're going to take some time off and, and sit on the bench for a bit. And now I go and watch. I mean, it's a little different in playoffs, but now I go watch the team I used to play on. Forwards come down the dots as fast as they can, and then they peel off. And they don't they don't really finish the hit anymore like they used to. And, you know, does that take a certain part out of the game? Yes, but I mean, there's more goals now. There's more exciting play because there's more skilled guys on the ice, which is what the true, I think nowadays, present day hockey fans want to see. I think the other thing that's interesting is in the same conversation is I I know a guy, well, I have a bunch of buddies in the American Hockey League, but which is the league just below the NHL. And there was a guy that fought, I forget how many fights he has in his whole career. I want to say something like 40 or 50, which is huge. And he's at the point now where he's, he literally said, 
and I don't know him that well. He said it to us in conversation. He's like, why, why am I doing that? Like, why am I putting myself in that position? I don't understand why, you know, I'd risk that. And he just had a kid and because of social media and everyone kind in a way knows everyone, it's not like it used to be that you actually, I think there's a little more going back to empathy. Maybe it's like, why am I going to run this guy when I know he has a family at home? And that's, I don't know why that's more, I think it was, that always existed, but I think it's just more powerful and relevant today because everyone's so interconnected. So it's, yeah, unfortunately I'm on the fence, but I, I believe there's, at the end of the day, it comes down to respect. That's the biggest thing. And that's starting to rise in the game for reasons. Like I just said, everyone's so connected nowadays that you, there's a little bit more respect on the ice. Is there a room for improvement? Of course there always will be, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely on the fence. I think in, you know, for the next couple of years, I think he's right. But as the game continues to evolve in the direction that it is where those types of plays and those types of players that are more likely to to act that way on the ice and take advantage of others, I think they're on their way out as well, which will just mean less less reason to have those enforcers on the ice. But he's definitely not not wrong right now. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point about the social media thing and how people are connected. Because, yeah, you you see, you know, they're little kids that they're playing with, like, when they're not on the ice. And, yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, you're going to go beat that guy up. It's like, come on, dude. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, I your, like that. Your buddy's his best friend on social media. Like, I can't, right? Like, everyone's just so close yeah. now. And which it, I think that'll have a positive impact. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, so when you got back to uh, hockey, did you approach the game any differently? Like when you go down, you know, behind the net to to get the puck, like do you have your head on a swivel now or like or or what? That's an awesome question because I it's I don't remember getting hit. So there wasn't a fear in my mind going back to get pucks, which which helped with going back to play. But the one thing I did have to change, so when I was moving into the league and and starting to play before my injury, I was more of an offensive defenseman, big time. And then after my injury, when I came back to find a spot in the lineup, I actually had to change my game. We had a couple of really good offensive defensemen and I took two years off. So I wasn't quite, we'll say it took me a little more time to get back into it. And at that point, once we're a couple months in, the roles were kind of found by, by everyone on the team and I wasn't going to be in that offensive role like I used to be. So I took on this defensive role, which actually ended up being great and fit in for the next three years like that. So definitely had to change my game a lot, but the idea of being scared and, and fearing being hit and whatnot definitely wasn't a fear only because I didn't remember ever getting hit in the first place. All right. I've had a lot of athletes say that same thing that have had head injuries. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I had this motocross rider on not too long ago. Uh, he's like a freestyle motocross guy. And he talked about getting knocked out, trying to like do some crazy flip that he like missed. And wow. he's like, yeah, I wasn't afraid to go back again because I don't remember any of it. So it was, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they say that's the body's natural reaction to protect you from ever worrying about it or being scared, which is interesting how it does that. Yeah, I just don't know how that works with like natural selection, you know, yeah. in, uh, in, in, here in the mind of evolution. <laughs> yeah. You the same thing that almost kills you. You're like, oh, <laughs> just go and do it again. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, what has your 
transition to life after hockey been like? You know, after your retirement, you kind of told us, you know, what thoughts were going through your head at that point in time and why you decided to make the move um, to something else. Uh, so what has your life uh, after hockey been like? It's been pretty exciting. I've actually, on the business side of things, I the Headstrong program turned into the Empower Foundation now, which is a national nonprofit out of Toronto. And we uh, fund research and then take the research and break it down into a digestible format that people can understand. Because, I mean, if you've ever read you know, neuroscience research, you have to be pretty well-educated and have about three hours to, to read research. So what we try to do is break it down. We have a team of doctors. We have a team of ambassadors that are professional athletes. And we let the doctors break down the the information. And then we hand it off to the ambassadors, the athletes, and they shoot it out on their social media. And it helps raise that awareness and understanding of, of this issue of concussion. So that's been, that's been cool. And then um, finishing up, I'm actually working on my last university course right now. So when I finished, I went to university while I was playing, but then since once I finished, I actually went to school part-time, continued going part-time while working and making money at the same time. So it's take, it'll take me one semester longer than I had planned, but it's been fun. I've been doing so many other things, trying a bunch of different startups, you know, working on this podcast is great. I do a lot of public speaking now and that's, that's really starting to expand. And yeah, so it's been a lot of, you know, I, I tell people, I don't know what I'm going to do for a living. I mean, I'm coaching now full-time with the University of Waterloo, but I still, which is the university in town. And it's, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do for a living, but I want to help people. The, the dream now isn't the NHL. It's how can I put food on my table and, and help others. And I really I have some ideas and I'm moving closer to them, but I'm not quite there yet. But I think that's, you know, that is the the NHL for me now is, is putting food on my table, but then helping people in some way, shape or form. I think there's a currency to, to helping people that is undervalued today. I think it's pretty incredible what it can do for, for your mental health and well-being when you're, when you're able to give back to people. I completely agree. There's, there's uh power in, in giving back and, and helping uh, others. Uh, before we get into, you know, diving a little deeper into the podcast, um, you know, what, you know, you did a great job of kind of, I feel like setting yourself up for an identity outside of hockey before it ended. So what advice do you have for current athletes to prepare for that transition? And then what advice do you have for athletes currently struggling in that transition to life after uh, sports? I think the biggest thing is usually utilizing the position you're in while you're playing. Because no matter what level it is, you have 30 or we'll say 23 guys in the room and they all know someone that knows someone. Like get to know your teammates as well as you can and then utilize every opportunity to make an impact. And I don't necessarily mean charity or, or nonprofit work. I mean make an impact somehow at, while being a player, whether it's uh, whether it is literally going to the hospital and doing those visits or just making an impact on one of your teammates so that, you know, when, when times are tough, you can reach out and say, Hey, do you know, you know, you know anyone that can help me with this. And when you have 23 guys in your back pocket that can help you, it, it helps when those times are tough, but it also helps build those, build other connections for future things you're going to do. And for me, 
now looking back and more than my university degree that's going to help me is the connections I built playing hockey and being and immersing myself in the community that I'm in. And it wasn't even my home community. It was just, I had a, a platform which wasn't my own. It was, it was being a hockey player in town and utilized every opportunity to make an impact wherever it could be. So then now that I'm done playing, I'm a part of a bunch of different groups and, and have a bunch of different resources and, and networks because of just you know, taking advantage of, of the platform I had, which was again, being a, being a hockey player in town. So it's, it's power in numbers, this world, it really is. So if you can, if you can build up that platform of support that you have, it's, you know, the, then it's endless. If you have an idea you want to try or you need help, the person, you know, knows someone else that knows someone else. So it's, it's, it's quite simple to me. That's, that's how I like to, to view life and, and what's caught me here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, no, it seems like it's working for you. And I think, yeah, I, I wish that I had uh, the knowledge and not really knowledge, just like the insight or uh, I'm, I'm missing the word, but you, you did it the right way to, to ease your, your transition because I struggled for like seven years before I figured out that I'm more than just a football player. Huh. Um, all right. So let's talk about the Heroic Minds podcast. So like, what are your goals with the podcast? And uh, you know what? What can listeners expect to to find there? Uh, well, it's right now. It's there's been a couple athletes for sure because that's where my network is right now. But now it's slowly starting to expand into to other stories of people that have been through adversity or have inherent adversity in their lives that they're able to deal with now. They've just learned how to deal with it. And the goal of the whole podcast is, you know, we quickly get through the the guest story, and then we get into the mindset that they had at different points in time along their journey. So it's cool because you just kind of dig and dig and dig into the mind of these guests and figure out how they're able to do what they do or how they overcame what they overcame. I mean, my one of the early episodes with a uh, guy named Nick Nezik, who played in the same league I did and then got an engineering degree from the school in town here. Um, he told his story about going through cancer and what his mindset was when he was going into surgery where they literally took the organs out of his body and laid them on his chest to make root, to get them out of the way so they could get rid of the, the cancer that they needed to get rid of. And, and just talking about the mindset and how his doctor was listening to Eminem on the way in and how he was getting pumped up. And, and it's when you can, when you can try and resonate with someone, someone's mindset, and then you can apply it to to your life. And that's what listeners are, are enjoying, I believe, is that you, for the 40 minutes to an hour, you can, you know, immerse yourself in, in a story of someone that's been through something crazy. Or another example is on the, uh, you know, not an injury at all is talking to Mark Shifley, who is uh, an assistant captain with the Winnipeg Jets and one of the most exciting players right now in the NHL just talked about how he maintains where he is and how he deals with performance anxiety. And, you know, the fact that he has a, a prayer group on the team, there are six guys go to a local chapel and pray. And that's one of the ways he deals with performance anxiety and putting your mind in. And I asked him, you know, when you have the puck on your stick to win the game in a shootout, what is it that's going through your mind? How do you approach that? And we break it down and, you know, it's, it's been, it's been exciting. There's been, that's, you know, there's, 
I wish I could talk about every guest because every story has been a life lesson for me. And but just showing the variety is is why I picked those two. So it's been it's been cool. The goal, you know, I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I would love to to grow it. Of course, I'd love to start speaking. I speak at a lot of schools, high schools and public schools. My goal over this year is to start speaking at some corporate events and corporate companies, and and build that as well into my into my repertoire. So. Yeah, it's it's a interesting little project started as just a bit of a hobby and then it's slowly growing. So really cool. Yeah, I definitely I'm going to go back and check out some of those episodes. I'm I'm interested to hear what's what's going through their head in in, in those moments as well. Cool. Um just in, in checking out your your website, you have some cool little uh tabs, I guess. Uh the, the toolbox part. I was looking through you know, you know, what can ex- listeners expect to find in your toolbox section of your website? And I found one post in particular uh, about stri- how striving for balance doesn't change the world. And I just want to have a little short discussion on, on that after you explain the toolbox. Yeah. So the toolbox is just blogs that I've been writing on things that I've you know, thought of or things that the, the cool thing is now, I, I actually wrote a lot of those in the early stages of the podcast. And I'm realizing now there's a lot of lessons from each guest that I can do some research on and, and add to and, and share their their points. So really the toolbox is, is just concepts and ideas of things people can apply to their life. And so there's a, a good example that striving for balance doesn't change the world. What that means in a nutshell is that often every, everything around us tells us to you know, if you're, you're stressed, do this and, and find balance and, and go to yoga and, you know, do everything you need to do to make sure you're always in balance. Well, I mean, I don't, if you look at all the stories of really successful people, and when I say success, I don't just mean money. I mean, overcoming and making change in the world and so on and so forth. It, it wasn't through balance that they did that. It was through you could say, I don't even want to say finding balance within being in balance because that's not it. It's it's finding a way to be composed when you're not in balance and finding ways to adapt through that imbalance that you have. And I mean, even referencing my guests, it's it's totally that way. It's being willing to act composed and think rationally as much as possible when you're not in balance. Because you have to push yourself to to make that change. Nowadays, you, I mean, you could use any example. You want to start a company, but you want to stay in balance. So you're not going to put in the extra hours of work and you're not going to risk the money because that's not in balance. You're not going to risk putting yourself out there, or your brand out there, or bouncing your idea off your friend. Because trust me, you're not going to be in balance when you do that. So right. to make, you know, to make an impact in any way and have success in whatever you consider success, unless that of course is just meandering through and not really doing much, um, you're going to have to to find a way to uh, find composure when you're imbalanced. And those are the ones that that end up making the biggest impact, I think, in this world. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I'm a very, like, I work in a corporate job and, you know, that doesn't make me really, like, feel alive. You know, like, that environment, like, if anything, like, sucks the life out of me. <laughs> uh so I, that's why I have the podcast. I have other little things I like doing on the side that like really energize me. But it's interesting you say that with, you know, that's why I, I picked this particular post out of all of them. Um, just because 
you're right. Like striving for balance, you know, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not really getting better or changing the world. And I listened, you should listen to this podcast too. I bet you, you would love it. Uh, you know who Paul Rabel is? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, like, the, cross, the cross player. player. So he's got a podcast called Suiting Up. Mm-hmm. Have you checked it out? Oh yeah, yeah. He's oh, awesome. So I just listened. Yeah, listened to his episode with Scott Galloway, who's like a entrepreneur and um, I think he's a professor at NYU. And that was one of the first things they talked about. He's like, I have balance today in my fifties because I had absolutely zero balance when I was in my twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was interesting, especially because you know I find with athletically you know, to find balance. We always talk about like, you know, um, how athletes only play one sport in a season and it's better to be like a multi-sport athlete. So you, you know, you're more well-rounded, you don't get injured, you avoid injuries like that, or you don't push through injuries and stuff like that. You need like rest and recovery or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. But it's just like an interesting concept. I feel like you have to find balance in balance. Like you have the balance of not being balanced too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting concept. I think the biggest thing is it's where, I mean, with advertisements, I think socially we're told that we can't perform when we're not in balance. And that's totally not true. It's it's really not. You see people perform not being in balance all the time. Take professional athletes working at their heart rates through the roof, yet they're still able to perform. So you can't say that, you know, in the other examples, the list goes on. You just can't say that because it's it's possible to. And the more you shy away from it, the weaker you become. The weaker those skills of being able to perform when the chips are down, the weaker those skills will become if you never practice them. It's like anything, right? So, if uh, if you're if you want to improve performing in this crazy world we live in right now. Just get used to performing when you don't feel comfortable, when you didn't get your eight hours of sleep and breakfast didn't really fill you up kind of thing. That's yep. uh, that's when it's going to be, you're going to... Sudoku's when you're tired. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. So where can people connect with you on social media and online and find your, your podcast? So on iTunes, well, all the servers, really iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, it's Heroic Minds and there's no space. So it's just Heroic and then Minds. Uh, my personal contact is Twitter and Instagram is Ben underscore Finelli underscore. And if you just search Ben Finelli, hopefully you can find it. It should be there. So um, yeah. And I and the website is www.heroicminds.live. So I, I love when people reach out. So if, if anyone listening has any questions about my my story at all, I encourage you to to reach out. I love I love reading those emails and, and having conversations with people around uh around North America so far. So it's it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well I'm I'm sure they will and I'll link all those up in the show notes. Uh, along with some of the other stuff that we talked about today. And this is the question that I finish all my my podcasts with. Um and that's what's your definition of toughness today? My definition of toughness today is someone that is has the ability to adapt. I don't want to, you know, it's a it's a whole nother word, but toughness to me is the ability to adapt. It's those that, um, regardless of the situation, can perform. And it's it's kind of the definition of toughness, but a little bit different. I mean, toughness is the amount of pressure you can take on before you start to bend, but what I think is the amount of pressure you can take 
and actually start to bend and react and, and be adaptable to the situation and then perform. Kind of like we talked about today, but uh, yeah, that's definitely, you know, when I look around at people, it's it's not the biggest or strongest, smartest or richest that I think are the toughest people or the, you know, the scariest looking physically. It's the toughest people are the ones that you have to, you take a step back. You're like, holy smokes, that person, you know, is has their integrity with them and, and performs the exact same way no matter what, rain or shine. That's, to me, that's toughness. You hit the nail on the head. That I completely <laughs> agree with that one. That's, those are the kind of definitions that I look for on these, so... Uh, ben, thank you so much for sharing your story and for creating your own platform uh, to, you know, inspire other people and help other people through adversity. And I'm, I love to. It was really fun talking with you. To just how similar our stories are and kind of where we've ended up in in this world. And if there's anything I could do to help you down the road, uh, let me know. I'd be I'd be glad to do that. I may take you up on that on that offer. I, I'm so happy I was I was able to sit down and chat with you and beyond that i'm super happy to hear you're doing as well as you are so we'll just together maybe one day work together and keep keep pushing this head injury stuff into the right direction so thank you so much for having me of course ben